Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Every morning I read uh, the BBC news on the website, on its website. And uh, earlier this month there was, because uh, on the front page it just has the headlines for different articles and there was one that caught my eye. It says, Kenyan, uh, Kenya alarm after carrier bag mistaken for stray lion. So I don't know if you've seen that story. So it was in a little village in Kenya and uh, the security guard saw a lion's head in one of the hedges. And so he reported it. He was obviously petrified, as you can imagine. Reported it and, and um, rangers came with rifles and they cautiously approached uh, what they thought was a lion. When they got there, it was a carrier bag with the print of a lion's head that had been placed in the, in the hedge. It actually had avocado seeds inside that the person was storing there. Uh, you think, what on earth does that have to do with 2 Corinthians? Uh, well, the church at Corinth had sort of got this idea about Paul. They thought he was a lion, but now they think he's more like a carrier bag. Uh, his, his, his bark is worse than his bite. Uh, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and contemptible. They thought he was something, they thought he was a big shot, but now these false apostles had come in and they had really shown the church that Paul is weak, uh, he's not to be trusted, he's, uh, he has no real power. And so what we're going to see in this passage is that that is not the case. Even though Paul has come in weakness, even though Paul suffers terribly and boasts in his weakness. The title for this sermon is Don't Confuse Weakness for Powerlessness. Paul as an apostle and the church, as the church of Jesus Christ and the resurrected Christ is, has all the power. Okay? And we're going to see that in the apostle Paul. So go back to verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. So Paul says, do you think this letter that I wrote, uh, the whole time I've just been defending myself, do you think that's what I'm trying to do here? Is this uh, what we're seeing today in the court case between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard? Is this just a defamation case? Uh, the, this group are saying bad things about Paul and Paul's just responding, defending himself. He's saying it's slander, I'm just going to defend myself. Paul says that's not the case. Uh, this is not simply me defending myself as though I have something to prove. He says, have you been thinking that? Are you thinking that I'm just trying to win an argument here? Uh, I'm just defending my reputation. Earlier on we've seen in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, I I think very little of what people think of me. I care very little for what other people think of me. His concern is what God thinks of him. Paul has been liberated from peer pressure and what other people think of him and living his life, 
just based on what others think of him. His concern is what God thinks of him. He says that, yeah, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ. Uh, the Latin phrase, quorum Deo, in the face of God. It is in the sight of God that Paul lives. His constant thought is that he is in the presence of God, that his life is lived before the presence of God. How, how, how do you live your life? Do you live like that? Is that how you make decisions? Uh, how will this affect my walk with the Lord? Notice what he says there, in the sight of God and for your upbuilding, beloved. For the, for the sake of the church. His whole life was for the glory of God and for the good of the church. Are those two entities, those two factors primary in your life? Do you make your decisions based on what, is, what brings glory to God and what is best for his church? How precious is the church to God? Uh, remember the Lord Jesus Christ did not die for those outside the church. He laid down his life for the sheep. When we look at world history today, you look at the news, what, it, what will be the headline? It will be something in the Ukraine and something there and something like that. Uh, we understand these things. But when Christ looks at the world, his focus is on the church. Wherever two or three are gathered in his name, that's the focus. His focus is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that emphasis should be true for us as well. When we make decisions about relationships, when you make decisions about career, where you're going to live, what vehicle you're going to buy, all of these things take into account how does this glorify God and how is this good for the church? Paul is saying that's how he lived. He wasn't here defending himself, just trying to win a defamation case or something like that. He says, my whole argument is not so much about me. I'm not worried about my reputation. Paul understood if the church lost confidence in him as an apostle, it could end in their damnation. That was his concern. It wasn't just, I want people to think highly of me. I want people to, to, to not think the wrong thing about me. He understands if they don't appreciate him and understand who he is and obey him, they've rejected Christ, they've rejected the gospel. Now, unfortunately, when it comes to, to ministry, as we've spoken before last year, ministry does tend, those in full-time vocational ministry, it tends to attract narcissists, people that are full of themselves. People who are more concerned with defending themselves than doing what is best for the flock. D.A. Carson writes this. He says, sadly, too many leaders consciously or unconsciously link their own careers and reputations with the gospel they proclaim and the people they serve. So they're trying to build their own kingdom. Uh, so this is just... For all of us to be aware, those who want to go into a ministry, be aware of this danger as a church to be on the lookout for that. The church is not a stepping stone for someone to build their own uh, kingdom, to become a celebrity pastor, to become a pastor for the whole of South Africa. The church is to be served. That's why we, by those in ministry are called ministers, servants, to serve for the good of the local church. Carson says, slowly, unnoticed by all but the most discerning, defense of the truth slips into self-defense, and the best interest of the congregation becomes identified with the best interest of the leaders. Personal triumphalism strikes again, sometimes with vicious intensity. 
It is found in the evangelical academic who invests all his opinions with the authority of Scripture. When you think, well, my opinion is equal to Scripture uh, on any doctrine. It's in, found in the pastor whose every word is above contradiction. In the leader, transparently more interested in self-promotion and the esteem of the crowd than in the benefit and progress of the Christians allegedly being served. It issues in political maneuvering, temper tantrums, a secular set of values, a smug and self-serving shepherd and hungry sheep. A danger to be aware of uh, in every church, to be on the lookout in your own life, in the life of those who minister and those who are called to minister, to always be examining ourselves. Am I about building my own kingdom? Is that what it's all about? I just defend myself. I want people to think highly of me. Or is everything motivated by, I live in the presence of God. It's for His glory and for the good of the church. What is best for the growth of God's people? For Paul, that is what drove him. He even says to them, Beloved, this is the church that has rejected him and done terrible things to him. And he says, Beloved, he loves them. Continues to love them. And then verse 20, he says, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. As we saw last week, and we read in the passage already, he's going to come back again a third time. The first time he came when he planted the church. The second was his painful visit. So he visited them, he expected to be encouraged, and he was excited about seeing them, and he got there. And he was confronted publicly and rejected publicly, and no one came to his defense. We saw last week, he should have been commended. They should have said, you don't speak to Paul like that. We know Paul's track record. We know his character. We know his life and his message and his doctrine. They should have defended him, but they didn't. And so he went, he went away. But now he's going to come a third time, and he still has a, a fear. We saw in 2 Corinthians 7 that there... There was a good report from Titus. Titus had been sent to visit them. He had come back. He said, look, there's been repentance. We saw the fruits of repentance in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and that encouraged Paul. But Paul was still aware that not everyone had repented, and that sin doesn't die easily, does it? And so he's worried, when I come, I may not find you as I wish. He, he hopes to find them in a good place. He hopes to find them with soft hearts, full of repentance. But he's worried when he comes, they won't be like that. They will still be in their sin. And then he says, and you may find me not as you wish. What he means by that is, if they're still in their sin, uh, he is not going to come in weakness. If they are unrepentant, he is going to come in power. He is not going to spare them. He's going to bring the rod. He's going to practice church discipline. He's going to deal with those who continue in unrepentant sin. Now, he doesn't want to come like that, but he will do it if he has to. The verse continues, he says, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. And so these are sins that affect the unity of the church. Every one of these sins Paul had dealt with in 1 Corinthians. Paul had spoken to them about the division their favorite, their factionalism. They had their favorite preachers. He had spoken to them about their fighting and quarreling and jealousy and 
seeking preeminence and all of these things, but his concern is that these sins are still there. And so we're going to go through this list. And uh, we know that the devil, I hope you know, the devil wants to always break down and destroy, isn't that right? Uh, he hates unity, except if it's u unity against Christ. But he wants to destroy families, he wants to destroy churches, and he does this through these sins. And so, I uh, pray that the Holy Spirit would convict you if you are guilty of any of these, and uh, that he would also give you repentance. So, quarreling. Uh, some translations may say strife or discord. It's contentions. If you're a contentious person, you always have to argue about everything. Okay? And I'm not talking about being valiant for truth. We're not talking about that. Paul is even here in this letter defending the truth. That's a different thing. Uh, but a contentious person. Remember, we're told to contend for the faith, not to be contentious for the faith. Okay? contentious person, a quarrelsome person. Wherever you go, you get into arguments and fights. It's like those people, people come and see me and then say, uh, this job's just not working out, you know, there's this, the boss is this and the boss is that. But it's the 20th job they've been in in the last, you know, three months. Start to wonder, well, I, yeah, is it... <laughs> it's like, are they, you have bad luck in picking jobs. Uh, 20 bad bosses in the last few months. Maybe there's something else going on. Maybe you're a quarrelsome person. Maybe you're a bad employee. employee. Uh, are you a contentious person? A quarrelsome person? Wherever you go, there seems to be contention. You stir up division. Jealousy. Uh, a strong feeling of resentment. So jealousy is, of course, when uh, you want what other people have, sort of like envy. Uh, and the thing with jealousy is it's pretty nasty. It's not just you want what somebody else has, you also don't want them to have it. Okay? You want it to be, you want them to suffer as well. Uh, and jealousy can creep into the church. In Corinth, they were, they were jealous about these so-called spiritual gifts that they all had. It became a competition. So it's possible to have sinful jealousy over the, the gifts, the good gifts that God has given people. You're jealous over this person's hospitality or jealous over this person's speaking gift or this person's praying gift or this person's kindness, whatever it is, or administrative gifts. You're not excited when someone else in the church is promoted. In fact, you're upset. Jealousy. Maybe with the young people. You're jealous that this one's going out with this one and they're not going out with you. You're upset about that. Instead of trusting God. Trusting that the Lord is in control. Do you think, I have to remind myself of this all the time, God loves all his children. He's not against his children. Do you, do you think he's actually against you? He knows exactly what you need. How do I know? He, he laid down, he gave his own son. He spared not his own son. Do you think he's going to withhold someone in marriage from you because he's against you? No, he knows what's best for you. Okay. He's always for you. 
He's never against his children, even when he's chastening us. It's because he loves us. So remind yourself of that. Don't allow jealousy and bitterness and envy to, to creep in, to cause division in the church. And it's subtle, isn't it? You might not, I mean, you might be very nice to the person's face. But inside, there's that bitterness that is seething. And remember the, the Old Testament, the sin of Achan. You can go and Google it or look in your concordance if you don't know who it is. But Achan was part of God's people, the nation of Israel. And they were told when they went into the city of Jericho not to take anything. It was to all be destroyed. And Achan stole some of the gold and some of the clothing. Secret sin. Nobody else knew about it. He went and buried it in his tent. Nobody knew. It was secret. It was totally hidden. And yet the very next battle against the city of Ai, the Israelites were defeated. And the lesson was the sin, the secret sin. It wasn't even directly against another person. The secret sin had massive effect upon the whole nation of Israel. Your secret sin, your hidden jealousy affects the church without us even realizing it. But it does. It robs us of your gifts. It affects the whole church. Your secret sin affects everyone as well. Anger. The idea here is, is, is obviously sinful anger. Intense anger with passionate outbursts. That anger is destructive, as Pastor uh, has mentioned before in his study of, of anger in, in the New Testament, in the Scriptures. Uh, anger is very, very, it's like fire. It can do wonderful good, but terrible damage, isn't that right? There is a good anger, there is a righteous anger, but, but um, more often than not, we, we are responsible and guilty of sinful anger. So be careful of intense anger. And it slowly builds up, doesn't it, over time. Little things. Okay. And uh, before you know it, you're a bitter person. Uh, you're not dealing with these things. You're angry over the way this is done. Why are the cars parked like that? Why is this done like that? Why don't they welcome me properly? Why, why is he his parting on that side? Why is <laughs> but that's how it, it snowballs. Bitter people are like that. Nothing's good enough. Everything. There's always a, a, a knife to be stabbed in. They can even say something nice, but then they always have to add something. The coffee was really great. If only it had been in good mugs. Uh, no, it can be anything, but it builds up this anger over petty things, and it causes division. It causes, and when you speak to people, you just put these little statements in to break down people in the church, to break down things the way the church does things. Just sow those seeds of division. Just seems to be harmless, but that anger has got you and you, you want other people to be affected as well. It flows, of course, to hostility, selfish ambition, rivalry, slander, to speak evil of, Slander is so, so deadly. Our words are so powerful, aren't they? We all, we all, you probably heard that childhood sort of rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Um, there was a cartoon 
that I had as a kid and I had someone beating someone else up with a dictionary saying, you know, words can hurt you. <laughs> Uh, but we know that words are the most dangerous, aren't they? They're very painful. And slander has dramatic effect. Joel Beakey says slander is like taking those, those, those uh, down feather pillows and you rip it open on a windy day. And, and all those feathers, the wind just takes them all over the place. You can still repent and apologize after you've slandered or gossiped someone, but you can't get all those feathers back in. It's gone now. The damage is done. People's reputations are ruined. Every time someone now thinks of that person's name, they think of that. And you repent. God forgives you, but the damage is done. How long do you think it will take the church in Corinth to recover from the things that they've said about Paul? Even if they repent, it will still take a long time. Those little lies that the false apostles said. Every time Paul has to talk about money or deal with money, they'll think, I wonder if we can trust him. Because of slander. Gossip. Lo Nida Lexicon says this about gossip. Provi providing harmful information about a person, often spoken in whispers or in a low voice with the implication that such information is not widely known and therefore should presumably be kept secret. Gossip. You know that sort of, I like the way they put it, spoken in low whispers. It makes it sound more important, doesn't it? You know, like it's just, it's just, it's because I'm very thoughtful and caring, you just, but you need to know this. <laughs> All of these things, and especially notice it's a lot has to do with the mouth, bring division. Cause disunity. The Bible has also is very clear on slandering or bringing accusations against elders. It is not a light thing. It must be two or three witnesses. Conceit. Literally in the Greek it has the idea of being inflated. Okay? It's quite a, quite a great image of being puffed up. Okay? Full of pride. Unteachable. And then lastly, disorder. A lack of order, a lack of structure. Um, the Corinthian church was a nightmare. Remember we saw in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, people were getting drunk at communion. It was chaos, disorder. This is very important. A lot of people think that uh, churches that have structure don't have the Holy Spirit. It's the churches that are, have chaos and disorder that really, that's where the Holy Spirit works. It's the opposite. First Corinthians 14, verse 33, Paul says, For God is not a God of confusion. Verse 40, he says, But all things should be done decently and in order. Disorder and confusion is not a mark of the Holy Spirit. Order. Everything done decently and in order. Why do we have a structure? Why do we sing at this time, pray at this time? God commands us to pray. God commands us to sing. God commands us to publicly read the scriptures. God commands us to proclaim his word. God commands us to have communion. And so we do these things. It's not chaotic. It's not disordered. Uh, if you're a visitor, I hope you can see that the God we proclaim is not a God who is clueless and has no self-control or something like that. We proclaim a God who is ordered and structured 
who has created a universe with order and structure and beauty. And so even in the way we do things, we are proclaiming the character of the triune God that we serve. And so Paul says, he's worried. Are all these things still there? Have they repented? Have they responded? Verse 21, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. And so these are now sins of purity. Uh, sins that affect the purity of the church. The other sins affect the unity of the church. These are the sins that affect the purity of the church. The church is called to be holy and pure. Paul is worried. He has this fear. Corinth, when I come to you, am I going to be humbled? Is God going to use this to humble me? I'm going to get there and find you haven't really listened to me. And it's the most terrible thing as a pastor, as a minister, if people don't hear God's word. Notice what he says, that I'm going to have to mourn over those who have not repented. Again, it's, you know, church discipline is not something where there's a, it's, it's a sort of a time of rejoicing or something like that. Notice that Paul says these are people who have not repented, yet he mourns over them. He is heartbroken over them. It's the way it should be. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked by so many churches that practice church discipline and there's no sort of grief amongst the leadership. It's just not a big deal. Um, they're happy for people to, churches to split and all of these things and there's no grief. They're not heartbroken. Paul was never like that. He was not a, a statue. It broke his heart what was going on in Corinth. He mourned. These are people who are continuing in unrepentant sin. You could say, those people have rejected God. They deserve what they're getting. It broke Paul's heart. He says, I'm, I'm worried I'm going to get there and have to mourn, have to weep over people who are continuing in unrepentant sin. And that's, Paul says, God will humble me through that. He's worried that God is going to do this. To humble him through a church that does not listen. Now what's the issue here? Is it the sin so much? Or is it unrepentant sin? It's unrepentant sin. Okay. We all sin. John MacArthur says this. He says the church is the best place to sin. What does he mean by that? He doesn't mean it's a license to sin. Of course not. What he's saying is there's hope. If you sin here and and come and confess it. We can deal with it. It's the safest place. This is the place where, this is what we're all about. It's, the church is not a place of people who don't sin, telling other people who do sin to stop sinning. It's, we're all sin. We are not sinners. That is no longer our identity. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. We are saints who sin, trying to help one another to sin less. So this is the best place. We can deal with it. Don't. When I say at communion, if, if there's a sin that you're still battling with and you're too scared, don't be. Speak to someone. I don't know the leadership to be self-righteous. I don't think there's any sin that will shock us. It doesn't mean we take sin lightly or anything like that or it's not horrific and we hate it. 
But the gospel is good news for sinners. Okay. And so come, confess those sins, bring them. Uh, bring them to the light. This is the place where we deal with sin. But it's unrepentant sin that we can't handle. Unrepentant sin. Sin when a person refuses to deal with it, refuses to turn from it. And the, Paul says this list. Impurity. Unclean. It's a word taken from the Old Testament. Remember the Old Testament had clean and unclean. You could be clean for worship. Or unclean meant you could not worship. That's the idea. It's the idea of the demeanor, the, the, the default position of the individual, that they are contrary to the things of God. If you're in the church and that's your default position, you don't delight in the things of God. You delight in the things of darkness. He uses this word, Paul uses this word, to describe those who, were, who are in darkness. This is the, the, the position, the demeanor of an unbeliever who continues in their sin, is not fighting their sin. It destroys the purity of the church. Sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia, where we get pornography from, but it's a catch-all word that covers all sexual immorality. Okay. Lust. Pornography, adultery, fornication, all sexual immorality is impure and makes the church unclean. Again, is there forgiveness if a person is repentant? Yes, of course. That's the gospel. But if a person is unrepentant, Paul is saying it's going to get there, then there is only one thing left. If a person refuses to, stop in their sexual immorality. So again, I'd say to you, if you're losing, you seem to be losing the battle against pornography, if you're in a sinful relationship, you need to repent of that and, if, and confess that. Speak to someone, a mature Christian, a member of the church, or one of the pastors. Paul says that all other sin is outside the body, but sexual sin, you, you're sinning against yourself. Okay. It is the most destructive of all sins. When we did the series in Song of Solomon, remember I said that if you're in a, some of you might, might be, even in a physical relationship with someone who is not your husband or wife, being in a physical relationship with someone will blind you to the reality of how sinful it is. It will blind you to truth. Because that's what sexual sin does. You sin against yourself. There is something about it that destroys who you are at the deepest level. It is self-destructive. But there is forgiveness. I'm saying this to get it home that you will repent. I'm not saying it so you walk out here condemned despairing. No, there's hope, there's forgiveness. We love the story of David, don't we? A murderer and an adulterer and yet a man after God's own heart. That's the gospel. There is forgiveness, there is hope, but only if there's repentance. And thirdly, sensuality. The older English version said licentiousness. Licentiousness, where we get the word license from. 
You know James Bond? He has a license to? To kill, okay? <laughs> I don't know where he got that from, but anyway. He has a license to kill. A licentious person thinks they have a license to sin. I have a license to sin. I don't, I'm not bound by the same rules as everyone else. Is that how you live? You think you have a license? You have a license to laugh at dirty jokes? You have a license to watch anything? You have a license to listen to anything? You have a license to, to be intimate with anyone? To, be, to steal, to be corrupt? You have a license. It's okay for you. Well, these things destroy the purity of the church. And so let me challenge you again and encourage you. Turn. There is forgiveness, wonderful forgiveness, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you, of chapter 13. Sorry. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So now he's, he, ref, he starts to talk about church discipline. Matthew 18, Jesus spoke about church discipline. You go alone to the person. Um, if they still don't repent, you take it to, to a, a, another person with another witness. If they still don't repent, you take it to the church. If they still don't repent, you put them out, excommunicate them, put them outside of the communion of the church. And so the mention of two or three witnesses in the Old Testament, you could only put someone to death if there were two or three credible witnesses. In the New Testament, we don't put people to death in the church. There's excommunication, but it's on the base of witnesses. And so he's now bringing up this issue of church discipline. He says, I'm worried. When I come back to you, are these sins still going to be there? Are they going to be undealt with? Because it will break my heart. God will humble me. It will be humiliating and humbling. And so he warns them, verse 2, I warned those who sinned before. And all the others, and I warn them now, while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. And so Paul, on his second visit, said, he warned the church. He said, if I have to come back again, and this is not dealt with, I will not spare, I will not spare them. He will practice church discipline. And then he says in verse, verse 3, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, now remember in the culture, the Corinthian culture, they were after these triumphalistic, confident, strong leaders. And Paul didn't fit that, that paradigm. Uh, Paul was weak. Paul was, uh, was not impressive to look at. He was not very eloquent, uh, at least in terms of their understanding of eloquence. Um, he was not bombastic, he was not threatening, he was not abusive towards them. He was gentle and kind, like a nursing mother. He was not full of threats and just a strong leader who just made decisions and told everyone else what to do. It's interesting, that's what people long for, actually. Um, we've spoken about it before. We are drawn to narcissists, we are drawn to abusive people. Um, we're drawn to Satan. It's Christ who is meek and gentle. It is Christ who is patient and kind. It is faithful pastors who are gentle and compassionate, slow to anger. Paul was like that. But because they said, well, he was, he's not this guy that we're looking for, and now he's, he's a bit of sarcasm. So he says, okay, is that what you're looking for, a tough guy? Looking for a strong leader? 
You, th- you, you want to know if Christ is really in me? Well, now you're going to see. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Jesus is not weak in dealing with sin when it comes to his church. And then last verse, for he was crucified in weakness. Yes, Jesus came in weakness. We've seen over and over again, Paul is living the cruciform life. The cross-shaped life. He is following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Suffering, humiliation, rejection, false accusations, violence. He's suffering. He's, he's, He's imitating Christ. He says, yes, Christ came in weakness, but... Don't think that he, he's still dead. The gospel isn't about having pity for Jesus. Shame, poor Jesus. He was so weak and then he died. No. He humbled himself. He laid down his life, but death could not hold him because he never sinned and he conquered death, hell and the grave. And that's why he says, yeah, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. And so this principle is the same as it was with Paul, the same today. Even if pastors are gentle and kind and weak, are not physically impressive, are not abusive, even if they suffer terrible things, don't confuse weakness for a lack of power. Don't think because Paul was weak, he had no power. He didn't have power in himself, but he had power in the resurrected Christ who deals with sin in his church. And so the gospel is that of a powerful Savior. One who conquered death, who rose again, is able to give us victory over sin as we walk in his ways, as we we repent of sin, as we partake of the means of grace, as we are in fellowship There is hope. Not always instantaneous. We know that. We understand that. But here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept, God builds his people as we obey him and go his way. But if you refuse to go his way, if you refuse to humble yourself, Christ is powerful. Christ is powerful in Paul. Paul would say, I will come there and there will be consequences. There will be church discipline. There will be excommunication. People will be put out. And that is the most horrific thing. And so the challenge, the warning to us as a church, if you continue in unrepentant sin, sins of, of, of disunity, sins of impurity, whatever sins they are, if you continue in unrepentant sin, bringing division in the church, continuing in, in, in immorality, impurity, the final step will be excommunication. Maybe you think, yeah, but I've, I know lots of people who've been excommunicated. Nothing ever happened to them. Uh, it's not excommunication isn't you walk out here, you get hit by a car. Excommunication means that all God's shepherding care for you is removed. You're like a sheep amongst the wolves. There's no shepherd to protect you anymore. That's what it means. You're outside of the fellowship. Does it mean you're not saved? Yes, on the outside it looks like that. That's how you will be treated. We don't know. There's wonderful stories. Praise God. People who have been excommunicated but come back proving to be truly saved. So that even then, by God's grace, there is hope. But 
It is a frightening thing to be put out. So don't continue on that path. Don't continue if that relationship is sinful. Don't continue with secret sin. Come to the Lord. He is powerful, not just to judge, but to save, to deliver. If you're not a Christian, enslaved to your sin, come to him. He is powerful to save. But I also have to say that this passage is saying he is powerful to judge. There is a day coming. There is a day that has been appointed by God. We don't know when it is, but it is coming. When Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead. Every, every single human being, every eternal soul will stand before him. And he will be a righteous judge. But if you are outside of him, there is no salvation, there is no hope. So flee to him. Don't you want to be forgiven? Don't you want to be right with your creator? Come to him. If you have more questions, come afterwards and speak to someone. If you are continuing in unrepentant sin, confess that. Bring it to the light. We are here for one another. That's why we here. God calls us to be a body. Because we need one another to run this race together. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you again for your Apostle Paul. Uh, what uh, an incredible man. Um, what an incredible example. So convicting, Lord. How often we just are about building our own kingdoms and defending our own names. and Our motive is not the good of others. It's not your glory or the good of your church. Oh, Father, help us to be a, a people who are passionate for your glory and passionate for your people. How can we not love your people? They are the ones that you died for. They are your children. How can we say we love you but curse those who are made in your image? And so we pray, help us. Uh, we pray for, for the sins of disunity and impurity, Lord. Uh, that you would work by your spirit. Convict. Uh, but more than that, Lord, lead to repentance and an assurance of salvation. And so we ask you to do a wonderful work. And if there are any here who are not saved, Lord, that they would be convicted of their sin. That they would see their need of a Savior. And what a Savior you are. That they would see how gracious and kind you are, how glorious you are, but also how powerful you are and how majestic. May none of us uh, think of your grace as a license to sin, but as a power to help us to fight sin. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.